Bill, you and I were fellow Missourians, born and raised here. I was going to say, born and raised my whole life. Um, our families go back several generations, I think. I know you've told me that some of your family uh, had grand- a, sh- a shoe store, a cobbler my, store, St. Robert area Yeah, my, my grandparents on my mom's side moved here from California. California, okay. And my family on my mom's side, uh, we actually uh, used to be, her, her maiden name was Cook, used to have Cookville, that's now part of uh, St. Robert's Fort Leonard Wood base. You know, but some of our listeners out there may be not as familiar with the Missouri Ozarks. Now, I will say recently some possibly ill-fated uh, limelight has been cast on the Missouri Ozarks from the <laughs> Netflix blockbuster Ozarks. Yes, I'm going to say we get that from time to time. Uh, about the corruptness in the backwoods area here with the criminals and money laundering and even drug cartel. And I, I wish I could tell you that that doesn't exist, but I think it exists to some degree in all areas. But back in 1992, 30 years ago, there was an unexplained event that occurred in nearby Springfield, Missouri, that rocked the entire community to its foundation. I remember when that happened. It is still an open, ongoing case. This story occurs in the high school graduation night of June 6, 1992, where two graduates and one of their mothers have gone missing, and it's been dubbed the Springfield Three Missing Women. That was the night when three attractive women simply vanished, leaving no trace whatsoever, but in turn leaving their car keys, purses, credit cards, and approximately $900 cash there in the house. Join us tonight as we try to understand that fateful evening concerning the disappearance of the Springfield Three. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded we become, fearful to be deceived. Still we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Now, Eric, before we got too far into this, and I want to repeat this at the end, you can still submit tips about this case. Absolutely. You are instructed to contact the Springfield Police Department or Crime Stoppers, and there is a $43,000 reward for the location and persecution of the person or persons involved. Now, just to uh, kind of give you a, a brief description of what the, these ladies look like and kind of give you how they were connected real quick, uh, you have... Friends Suzanne, Susie Streeter, and Stacy McCall. Suzanne was 19. She was not very big, five foot two, 102 pounds. Shoulder-length blonde hair and brown eyes. Uh, distinguishing features included large teeth with no dental work. Now, having seen the pictures, I'm not sure why they phrased it like that. Let's say she had a, a prominent smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, a scar on her upper right forearm and a small mole on the left corner of her mouth. She had pierced ears, with her left ear being pierced twice. Uh, Stacy McCall was 18. She was another small girl, five foot three, hundred twenty pounds. Uh, she had long, dark blonde hair and blue eyes and a dimpled chin. Both girls had graduated from Kickapoo High School on June 6th. Now, the other woman involved was Streeter's mom, Cheryl Levitt. Cheryl was 47 years old at the time. She was thin built, five foot, 110 pounds, naturally curly, light blonde hair that she had cut short. She had brown eyes and pierced ears, uh, and at the time was a cosmetologist, as well as a single mother, and very, very close to her daughter. 
Well, these are the three women that on June 7th, 1992, would, would disappear and, and sort of leave kind of all of Missouri wondering what happened for a very, very long time. Yeah, and again, was, it's still unsolved. This was a huge story, unsolved yeah. mysteries and everything. We, we still don't know what happened, but... One of the first things I uncovered that I did not know that I thought was interesting was uh, Stacy and Susie had known each other for a long time back in elementary school, but uh, Stacy McCall and her family actually moved away to Wichita, Kansas for a period of time. And in that time frame, Susie moved on, obviously, to develop friends with others. But when they moved back, Stacy mostly hung out with her two sisters and one particular kind of shared mutual friend by the name of Janelle Kirby. Now, she plays a major role yeah, in all of Kirby's this. Kirby's very much involved in this. But ironically, where I'm getting going to with this, ironically, Susie and Stacy had only really started hanging out again again just weeks before this disappearance occurred now like we we said in the intro i'm sure eric remembers you know i would have been in high school when this happened and i remember seeing the the missing posters i remember it being quite a big deal on the news and you know it's it's one of those stories where i know it's been covered by other podcasts i've listened to another podcast that was sort of centered around ozark lore and they covered the springfield three i know there's an entire podcast was it five or six episodes even yeah and i definitely i want to give credit to that uh, a lot of the reference that i've come across it was a podcast by ann roderick jones and the podcast is the springfield three it actually aired in may of 2021 and it's it's great if you want to even have more details it's about yeah, it was, seven or eight hours yeah i was gonna say what what we do here on our podcast i mean when we're going to talk about it. We've got some detail. I mean, we are far from an exhaustive look at it. We're just going to kind of get into it. Based on what everybody knows, based on the story, what we have, so it starts with Suzanne and Stacy last being seen around 2 a.m. on June 7th. Uh, and that was when they were leaving the last of the graduation parties they had been attending that night. Their plans were to drive to Branson that night and spend the next day at Whitewater. Uh, they changed plans sort of last minute, and they called Stacy's mom about 10.30 uh, that night to let her know that they'd be driving to Branson the next day. They changed their plans. They were going to spend the night with Janelle Kirby. Yes. And you'd already referenced. A uh, close friend. And even before that, to add more confusion, uh, at a boy's house, Brian Joy's, and then for whatever reason... Susie began to actually talk to him, and, and when she calls home, she's like, Brian suggested we go get cleaned up and not spend the night here, so now we're going to be spending the night at Janelle Kirby's house. Yeah. So there was a lot of things happening, graduation night and the parties and everything, so that's kind of to be yeah. expected. They decided they're going to stay at Kirby's house, and then, I don't know, while they were there or, or what motivated them, but they decided Janelle's house is too crowded. Well, that's because a lot of her family that was in from out of state decided to stay an extra day so well, the house sense. was pretty full with family and the mom said oh there's still plenty of room actually even made the girls kind of a improv bed with a whole bunch of quilts and pillows in the living room floor but they kind of felt that you know i don't want to intervene you know you got family here well, and i don't know what it's like when you graduated i had family from out of state <laughs> yeah yeah so instead of staying at Janelle's house, they instead decided to go to the Streeter's house for the night. And so they go back to Susie's house, where she, you know, lived with her mom, uh, which was located at 1717 East Delmar Street. Mm -hmm. Now, right now, at this point in time, no one knows for sure what happened next. Yes, that is correct. Between the time they got to that house, well, actually, between the time they left Janelle's home and about, what is it? noon the next day or let's 8 a.m we'll say no one really knows what happens 
We do know police reports showed that uh, Cheryl Lovett, the mother, had made a phone call with a friend at approximately 11.15 to 11.30. So we know the mom was at home. She was safe. Mentioned that she had been repainting a a chest of drawers, a cabinet kind of deal. Uh, She made no mention that anything was wrong, didn't seem in distress whatsoever. These were also the same friends who had seen the girls the night before. So, I mean, it was, they'd seen the girls. They knew they were safe at one point. Mm Mm-hmm. But now, here's kind of where we start to, as Bill said, we don't know anything for sure. We have the mom at the house apparently seeming to be safe at 11.15, 11.30. The girls have now decided to change plans to staying with Janelle Kirby 2 a.m.-ish, sometime in that time frame, would be heading back. But Cheryl, the mom, wouldn't know any of this. This is well before cell phones and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Probably wouldn't have tried to call the mom and wake her up. So Cheryl may not have even known the girls were coming. They may have, maybe she had the house locked. Maybe the house was unlocked. You know, maybe they had keys. Maybe she had a guest thinking that she was going to have the night to So there's a lot of uncertainties that start to unravel right here. Yeah. Between 2 a.m. And, and 8 a.m., no one knows what happened for sure. All we know the documented facts of the case is at 8 a.m., Kirby calls over to find out what time they're going to be leaving for Branson. Mm-hmm. Heading to Whitewater. So, if you know, you know, I mean, if you're from Missouri and you know your geography, you know, it's about, what, 45 minutes? Yeah, they're about Springfield to Branson. Yeah. Now, the reason she called is because they had not shown up at her house, which the plan was everybody was going to drive over to Janelle's home. They were going to load up and they were going to go to Branson from there. She called over there at 8 o'clock. She ain't getting an answer. So after calling several times, Kirby and her boyfriend decide they're going to go check on them. So they show up about 1230 that afternoon. Uh, when they arrive, they find the front door unlocked. And this is small town Missouri. That, that well, wasn't that uncommon. Small town Missouri. For Missouri, you know, Springfield's a pretty good sized city. But, you know, still Missouri, mid-90s. I mean, we didn't have a lot of violent, unexplainable crimes like that, you know, what or what might have possibly happened. We, again, we still don't know. So they just, they go ahead and they go inside. They find no sign of Streeter, McCall, or Levitt. Each woman's car is parked out front. Mm-hmm. They also find that the glass globe on the front porch light has been shattered. The light bulb itself is not broken. That's interesting. Yep. Now, Kirby's boyfriend, he sweeps up the bro- broken glass, just trying to help, trying to clean up. And no, you don't want somebody stepping yeah. on it, cutting their foot. But, of course, at this point in time, no one realizes this is a potential crime scene either. Yeah, that's potential evidence. Now, inside, they found the family dog, a Yorkie named Cinnamon. I'm going to tell you, I have a lot of familiarity with this particular breed of dog in my life. And I think we, you know, small dogs like to bark and and make noise. So, you know, this this dog. That's why they're called yappy little dogs. This 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 (laughs) Yorkies are, yeah, they're yappy little dogs. Now, the dog did seem to be agitated. And while they were there, apparently they answered a strange and disturbing call from an unidentified male caller, mm-hmm. with the caller making numerous sexual innuendos. Now, Kirby hung up on the caller, and immediately another call came through, very similar to the first, and she hangs up again. Now, McCall's mother, Janice, arrived at the house a few hours later. Now, I will interrupt you there. Okay. If you, yeah, she, I was going to say, I bounced. She didn't even know the address of Streeter's house, because again- They had kind of moved back, and the girls had only started hanging out a couple weeks. So, from what I understood, she called over to Janelle's, Kirby's house, and I think got the sister to Janelle Kirby, and was like, hey, you know, put put them on the phone. I want to talk to them. And they're like, well, she's, they're not here. Yeah. They were, but they left, and she's like, well, that wasn't the plan. And and from what I understand, again, you got to think about teenage daughters. They're like, well, I don't know if that was the plan or not, but I'm just telling you, they're not here. This is not what the mom wanted to hear. Well, and, and apparently, Stacy was the kind that would check in. 
Yes, very frequently. So that that was why that was another reason why the mom was concerned, and she had not heard from Stacy in a while, and it was it was very unusual. Like I said, Stacy was the kind to call and say, "Hey, this is where we're at. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing." Like her mom knew all her plans. That's why she knew to call the Kirby house yes. and, and find out what was going so on. So Stacy's mom calls and talks to Janelle Kirby's mom, gets this address that she did not know, much less a phone number. Yeah, and then heads over towards the house. Yep. Now, again, while inside, people begin to notice things that seem out of the ordinary, such as all three women's purses sitting on the floor of the living room. Yeah, Stacy's mom uh, also notices her daughter's clothing folded neatly uh, from that she was wearing the night before. Uh, Levitt and Streeter cigarettes are found inside the home. I don't know if you know of any smokers. They don't typically leave their cigarettes behind. One of the police officers even stated that. Like, you know, it's one thing to leave your purse or credit cards, but I'm telling you, as a fellow smoker, the, the cop saying, a smoker yeah. doesn't leave their cigarettes behind. So at this point, Janice McCall frantically calls police from the home phone here to report that the, the women are missing. And again, this is Missouri at at, at mid nineties. We still early nineties. You know, it, it's still these things were kind of unusual. So they she checks the answering machine and listens to what she called a strange message, which somehow inadvertently ends up being erased. Yes. And again, at the time, I don't think anybody realized this was a po- police crime scene. Well, you know, she started to believe it at that point, but but even to add more compromised crime scene. And again, this is this is going to take some people back. But again, you've got to realize the time frame and, and the area. The kids, Janelle and her boyfriend, and another gentleman had come to the house. They found the house unlocked. They found the globe broken. They sweep the glass up, as you said. Don't think anything about it. Ironically, they don't put the glass in the trash, but they pitch it over the fence to the neighbor's side, which is a commercial building. That was a little odd, but okay. Well, then they go inside. They see the purses and stuff, and they think, well, obviously, they couldn't have gone too far. They're going to be right back. So they just come in and sit down on the couch, make themselves at home. But to the point that Janelle even notices there's some dirty dishes in the sink. So she's trying to be helpful. So she gets up and she does the dishes. Uh, the boyfriend, I believe, notices that the ashtrays need to be dumped. So they dump the ashtrays. So there's some cleaning and stuff that's going on. And again, it, it, it I don't believe it never at all it was him. ever intentional. No, yeah, it never dawned on him it was a crime scene. But this crime scene, by the time the cops get there, is really contaminated it, it's estimated at a later date that as many as 20 people had been in and out of this this home this lawn yes in the time that they were trying to do their because this kind of stuff just doesn't happen around here again the, the, the phone call on the answering machine is accidentally erased uh police were supposed to be very very interested in that call believe it may have provided a clue and could also have been very likely related to the prank calls that kirby received when she was there McCall's parents contacted the police more than 16 hours after the women were last seen. Other worried friends and family had called and visited throughout the next day. Uh, And again, because they're visiting the house and and all that, like I said, as many as 20 people potentially have corrupted this crime scene. Yes, yes. Again, upon arrival, police found no evidence of a struggle except for the broken porch globe. They noticed that Levitt's bed had been slept in, but other than that, all personal belongings had been left behind. Now, I'll add in here, too. At this point, when the cops are showing up, Janelle starts to kind of, you know, think, you know, obviously something's something's bad wrong here. And she starts kind of replaying in her mind. To your point, when they first pulled up that morning, 8, 8.30, all three cars were there the mom's car, and then both the girl's car. She remembers thinking, uh, and she says it seemed odd looking back on it, stating where normally if Cheryl's car, the mom, is parked in the carport, Susie would normally park next to her mom unless there was another vehicle parked there. They found both the girl's cars kind of in the half-circle drive. 
which kind of indicates if you go back on past, possibly there was another car another there. Vehicle, another vehicle. Another vehicle was there, and that's why they wouldn't have parked there. Uh, but we, again, we don't know. A lot of speculation at this point in time. Now, again, we're talking about rural Missouri. We talked about how it was a different time before cell phones, you know, people letting themselves in the house if it was unlocked. But I will say we will flash forward here a little bit. Little known fact, Springfield, Missouri is the third largest city in all of Missouri, uh, second being to St. Louis, and then the largest being Kansas City. The average U.S. poverty rate in the United States is approximately 10%. However, in Springfield, it is 25%. That's one out of four people in Springfield that's living at the poverty level. So that was I, that was unbeknownst to me. I, I didn't realize that. It doesn't surprise me, but I wouldn't have known it. Yes, yes. A little bit more about the mother, uh, Cheryl Elizabeth Levitt, as you, know, as you said, 47 years old. When all this happened, Susie Streeter, the mother, Cheryl Levitt, had just moved to this same house, 1717 Delmar, about a month prior to the disappearance. Uh, Another mostly unknown factor is that Susie Streeter had moved back to Missouri from the Seattle, Washington area just a couple years prior, and it was stated that she was tired of her life in Seattle and wanted a fresh new start, and in particular, a new life for her daughter. She was committed to giving Susie a better life than what she had had, and uh, really, I think, started her on the right path. She was a very successful cosmetologist, as Bill had mentioned by trait. And although she'd arrived in Springfield just a few years prior, she had built a successful list of over 250 repeated clients. That's That's saying something. I mean, now cosmetologist friends and neighbors, when they were interviewed, they shared how devote of a mother Cheryl was. Yeah, they said they were very close. Oh, very close. And they said she was a model employee. Everybody gets sick every now and then, but I mean, really a model employee often would stay late to finish up with a client or someone was running late and, and all this. And sure enough, one of the people that first gets pointed at is, well, I bet the mother has something to do with the girl's disappearance. And some of these people that worked with Cheryl was gravely offended, you know, when these acquisi- uh, acquisitions well, started coming out. Even with the evidence at hand, it seems like the mother wasn't, she was as much a victim as everybody else. Absolutely. I mean, why would they, why would they look at her? But, you know, they stated Cheryl was honest. She was a hardworking professional. And if anything, they believed one of the girls was most likely connected with the three's disappearance. Now, when the police had found nearly $900 being left in Cheryl's purse, it's easy to jump to conclusions. And that's where a lot of this came from. Well, how does, to change for that time How does she make that much cash? You know, she must have been doing something on the side. And, you know. Cosmetologists get tips all the time. Bingo. And they said, and back then things were paid for with cash. Bingo. Yes. You know, <laughs> the, the manager of where she works said, you have to remember, we didn't do credit cards back then. It was cash or personal check. That's almost unheard of these days. And said, with that being a graduation weekend, especially said, oh yeah, that's not that uncommon. That's like two days worth of, of work. Cause she may not have been able to get to the bank or whatever with the weekend and everything going on with the graduation. Yeah, absolutely. That, that makes sense. Uh, so, but they were really, I mean, they were quick to jump up and, and defend, you know, Cheryl, the mother, you know, again, that was quite, quite normal. We talked about the compromised crime scene. We talked about the answering machine inadvertently being erased, all the ashtrays being dumped, dishes being done, the globe being thrown across over on the commercial lot next door. I mean, if you were going to start doubting anybody, you doubt like the, possibly Janelle Kirby, yeah, Kirby and, and her boyfriend, boyfriend and and the other I mean, friend that came up the with crime them. scene. Yeah, yeah. Now again, 
I think with with the evidence as you have it now, that was all unintentional. Absolutely. They thought they were doing a favor for, you know, they they didn't know they were missing. Making the best of the time. There is another huge aspect of the story, and that's the van. I've heard reference to the van. It changes colors. Maybe I didn't (laughs) dig deep enough. I didn't specifically talk about it, but I know... That there are there is talk of a van, so I'm, you're going to get into that. Uh-huh. And I know that van ties into some other story later on that I think we're we're probably going to at least touch on. We'll here. touch upon. There was a lot of theories and leads, thousands and thousands over the next few months after this occurred. And to the point, I want to stress, as Bill said, you know, even if you have a lead today, it is still an open case. There are one to two new leads a year still as of 2022 in this case. One of the most common tips was an older 1970s style van. It had been reported as all of the following. An all green, an all blue, even a white van in I color. See, I heard about green. So there's, you know, that's kind of the wishy-washy. A lot of people will just say, we're just dismissing this. It, you know, it's not the same van. But it had been spotted by neighbors a few days prior to the incident, as well as the night of the disappearance. I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this. A 1970s panel van was actually on file as being reported stolen in the Springfield neighborhood that very night of graduation, just a few miles away from the Streeter Lovett home on 1717 Delmar. So at least, to most, the van could have had a real connection to the missing three. Coincidence? Maybe. One of the most credible sources, however, was a neighborhood mother who had gotten up with her infant uh, and went out and sat on the front porch at about 6 a.m. to try to calm the infant. Uh, And she described seeing a Dodge panel van from the late 60s, possibly early 70s, in a pale blue or green color because the sun had not yet, you know, light plays tricks, blue, green. I, I can understand that. And she remembers vividly seeing a woman, a young woman, sitting in the front seat that appeared distressed. Not much more can be deemed from this, except for one small detail. She remembers a street light that was shining down on that side of the woman's face, where she made out a mark on her cheek, but few knew of it as she normally covered that spot with makeup. And this is, of course, one of the missing girls. Again, this seems to add a little bit more merit or credit to the van connection. Now, yet another report with a similar van turned up a few streets away on East McDaniel. And if you're familiar with Springfield, it's over by the Georgia Steakhouse area. A woman reported seeing the driver who she later identified based upon the flyer posters as Susie Streeter, in the front seat, in the driver's seat. The windows were rolled down on the van. The van, as she describes it, just kind of whips in and pulls in her driveway as she happens to be out on the front porch. The, the woman states this older, light green 1970s panel van pulled off the street into her driveway. Again, the windows were rolled down and she heard a man's voice, back up and get the hell out of here. The van then backed up very quickly, abruptly, and then drove away. Now, several days went by uh, when this woman called in later to the police after recognizing, again, the young woman as Susie Streeter being the driver, again, based on those flyers that if you lived in Missouri, you can't help but not have, have seen. Some are still hanging in Springfield even today. She was brought in for questioning. She was even put under hypnosis at that time frame to try to help her remember any more of the details. I had mentioned Georgia Steakhouse. 
Another connection. A waitress remembers these three women, again, based on the flyer, the posters, the pictures, had come in the it's all, all night, at that time open 24-7, restaurant with three men. It was between the hours of one and three, and Susie in particular she identified and said she appeared drunk or under the influence, staggering around, acting dizzy. She only mentioned Susie being in this condition, but at the time she thought graduation night, she probably partied a little bit, and the family, thinking the guys and the girls were all together, had brought them in for breakfast and you know try to sober her up so she didn't think a lot about it now during this time frame springfield police department found and purchased a similar 1970s panel van even went to the point to have it painted up a pale lime green and parked it outside the police department for many many months and there was a sign on it have you seen this van or one like it please call this special hotline number and i remember myself Back in 1992, you said you were, I think, getting ready to graduate or in school. Oh, I was, yeah, like in the middle of high school. I'd been married for two years. <laughs> uh, but I remember the stigmata of, of if you drove any remotely type of that van, not only might you be pulled over by the police in Springfield, but like neighborhood watch groups, literally. I mean, it was that type of a presence. Well, that was, again, I mean, things like that didn't happen. It was the biggest story in the area for a long time. Absolutely. Now, just in the past five years, as the van ordeal seemed to kind of lose some of that stigmata, five years have now passed since the disappearance, a second generation owner of a local dentist's office, which happened to be the commercial property that I mentioned that the glass globe had been thrown over on near 1717 East Delmar, comes forward and he adds a bit more strength to the van stories as it's starting to die off he brings it back and he says he remembers his dad seeing a similar van behind their offices which would be directly behind the dentist office but also behind their house the opposite side of the privacy fence to the street or home if that if that helps make sense and on one such occasion his dad said one night he noticed that van was parked back there still running and said it was because he had been finding excessive trash dumped into one of their dumpsters, which is illegal. Uh, he had been watching the back alley, you know, a lot more. He ran into the office, grabbed a pen and paper, and he was going to write down the license plate. As he returned from the office with that pen and paper, the van was pulling out very slowly. He said he later reported to police there were three middle-aged men in the van along what appeared to be, as he described, Cheryl Streeter, the mom. But she seemed fine and, and acted like she knew the men, and like, you know, she wasn't being held against her will or anything. So again, this kind of rebirthed that, the whole van tie. You had mentioned America's Most Wanted. There was a later development. On December 31st, 1992, a man had called into America's Most Wanted hotline with information about the woman's disappearance. But the call, unfortunately, was disconnected when the switchboard operator attempted to link them to the Springfield investigators. Police said the caller had prime knowledge of the abductions and publicly appealed for the man to please call back, but never did. Now, Levitt and Streeter were declared legally dead as of 1997. However, their case files are still open and as missing. Now, around the same time, uh, 1977, I have that there was a prisoner in Texas, a convicted kidnapper and robber by the name of Robert Craig Cox, which you said you have multiple suspects, so I'm sure you've heard of Cox here. I'll let you have that one. But he was, uh, he was, uh, he was also a suspect in a murder in Florida. Now, he told journalists he knew that the Springfield Three had been murdered. He, their bodies had been buried and they would never be recovered. 
And looking into his background in 1992, Cox had been living in the Springfield area. Uh, at the time he had, at that time, he'd actually been interviewed. He was looked at as a suspect back then. He claimed that he was at church with his girlfriend that morning, and the girlfriend at the time confirmed this story, although the, she later would recant that, saying that she had only told what Cox had told her to say. He also claimed to be at his parents' house that n the, the night of the disappearance, an alibi which was confirmed by his parents, and he told journalists and authorities he would only disclose what happened to those three women after his mother had died. Which has not occurred. So that, that, that's about the end of, of Cox there. I will throw a little bit more to add some credence of especially why he was looked at. According to Florida court records, back in December 30th, 1979, there was another disappearance of a 19-year-old Sharon Zellers who disappeared from Walt Disney World. Now, Zellers had called her folks and had told her she was getting ready to leave work that night, stating that she was going out to have breakfast. This is kind of one of those you know, night shift people who got off and they would go out to work. Going to breakfast with some other employees, and she would call again before she left the restaurant, but she did not call. Four days later, her abandoned car was found in an orange grove. A short distance away, her body was found tossed into a sewer treatment lift station. Due to the body being submerged in raw sewage, even though for only a few days, dental records were needed to identify the highly decomposed body. But let's back that up just a bit. Now, Robert Craig Cox, he had returned to the hotel the night when she went missing. They were staying there at a hotel. Her, or Him and his family were visiting, actually, Walt Disney World. He arrived at the hotel in bloody clothes, bleeding profusely from his mouth. He met his mother on the second floor where he had literally left a blood trail, the management said, all the way down the hall, up the elevators, and, and to the floor where he met his mom. The tip of his tongue had apparently been severed. The family rushed him to the ER where surgery soon occurred. Unable to fully speak for several days, Cox used sign language and, you know, wrote down things on scribble pads on what had happened as police began to question him, putting together that he might have something to do with this missing case person. Now, he had stated that he had been at a roller skating park where he and some others had got into a bit of a scuffle, a fight <laughs> outside, and he had bit his tongue when he was punched. You say if he skates the way I do. <laughs> I, I was terrible at it. Now, he had left the, that skating area, driving himself, leaving blood all in his car, but he could not locate the hotel where his family was staying. So he returned back to the skating rink, where he said a good Samaritan then in turn dropped him off, gave him a ride to the hotel, which, by the way, was just around the corner from the skating rink, but he couldn't find it. As the case built, doctors were questioned a little bit more about the type of injury to Cox's tongue. And as I'd stated, the tip was missing. They stated it was highly unlikely with that type of injury he himself bit his own tongue that hard, but rather it looked like possibly someone or something had bitten it and ripped it off. Not to mention the fact the tip of the tongue was never found. And if you did bite your own tongue, most likely in those type cases, according to doctors, it would be in your mouth or you would have it with you. So that, that was a little odd. During the trial, the medical examiner attested to all of this as well as the autopsy on Zeller's body, stating multiple blunt force traumas to the head area and rape had occurred. He went on to say the victim properly lived four to six hours after the incident and may have actually drowned in the raw sewage after she had been cast down there. 
Several strains of that particular girl's hair had been then found in Cox's car, as well as blood that did not match his own. So this is why he was definitely a prime prime suspect. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, he's not a good guy. He's a bad guy. He's bad. So in 2007, police received a tip that the women's bodies had been buried and that they were buried in the foundations of the south parking garage of the Cox Hospital. Yes, indeed. Now, of course, I've been to the Cox Hospital and, you know, all that. A mechanical engineer scanned a corner of the garage with ground-penetrating radar and discovered three anomalies. Uh, all three anomalies were roughly the same size and were consistent with a gravesite location. Now, the tipster provided no evidence or logical reasoning behind his theory at the time or since, uh, but the garage began construction in September of 1993, over a year after the disappearances had occurred. So I would assume, you know, when you build a garage, and especially a garage of that size, you, you clear the land and you bulldoze a substantial portion of it. So I don't think the bodies would have been buried there prior to. Well, that was kind of one of the arguments was they. You could argue it either way. Well, one, it just couldn't be because it was a year later. But you could say, well, maybe they kept the girls alive for a year and then put them there. Without reasonable suspicion and due to the cost of the process, uh, digging up the area was considered to be illogical under the circumstances. And police later said that the tip came from someone who claimed to be a psychic or claimed to have a dream or a vision about the case. That did not help to add credence. Yeah, that didn't really help anything. And scientists were kind of brought in and they said, you know, to your point, especially you're going to bulldoze an area. What they were picking up on that sonar was approximate body sizes. They said that is very common to what you would see for possibly tree stumps or partial trees or just debris that would have been buried there. And that was in one corner that said you could, you could do the tracking over the area and you would find multiples. Now, another interesting one, that wasn't the only possibility of uh, buried under concrete story. Uh, if you're around Missouri, you might have heard of PFI Westernware. I do remember hearing about that. There yeah. was one. Uh, now, from what I understand, there was existing buildings there, and then they kind of connected some of the buildings and, and broadened. Well, I mean, I was, my mom, we went to Springfield on a regular basis growing up, so I remember that PFI Westernware corner developing over right the Right there years. off of Highway 65 going to Branson. Not nearly as big as it was. It, it, it wasn't as big then as it was now. But again- there really wasn't enough information to go off of. And again, it was something that was many, many months, if not a year or more after the girl's disappearance. So it also was kind of, you know, thrown out, so to say. We'll talk about another suspect, and that is Bart Streeter, nine years older son to Cheryl Lovett, an older brother to Susie Streeter. A strange relationship uh, when back in the 80s, older son Bart and mother Cheryl had some disputes. And any of us that's raised kids, I think, can <laughs> relate to this. And I have argued with my mom a time or two. <laughs> Bart, you know, basically she said if Bart was to be living with the younger sister and the mom, it was her house and her rules. Yeah, very common. Uh, this did not set well, however, with Bart. And so he decided to leave his mother and younger sister, Susie, and do his own thing. Now, from what I can put together, this would have been in the Seattle, Washington time before uh, mom and daughter moved to Missouri. In 1991, however, Bart moves to Springfield, Missouri area after a very nasty breakup uh, in hopes of himself making amends and a new start, but making amends with his mother and young sister. Since he had only returned to be a part of their lives for about one year prior, this did make him a key suspect for the police. 
However, since passing a polygraph test and really with no evidence pointing to him whatsoever, it was dismissed. Now, since that time, uh, he's had several minor run-ins with the law, everything from public intoxication to disorderly conduct. But seriously, it, it begs to be answered. If, if your mother and sister vanish right before your eyes, you've moved there trying to start a new relationship with them. And within a year, this all happens. You're trying to mend fences. He's estranged. He, he's getting over his own father and being estranged. It's not that far of a stretch to maybe pick up the bottle of alcohol and you could see where he might fall in, in that. He actually has started or some time ago a website with leads for his uh, mom and sister. So he was, for the most part, quickly dismissed. Now here, the third set of suspects I thought was quite interesting. And this was something that I heard nothing of during the original. And honestly, I just found out about this a few weeks ago. Susie's ex-boyfriend. Dustin Reckla, I believe is the way you pronounce his last name, and his friends, Michael Clay and Joseph Riedel. It is now public knowledge that while Susie Streeter and Dustin Reckla were dating, he and his friend Michael and Joseph were arrested for vandalism on February 1st, or February 21st, 1992. That's just a few months uh, prior to the girls' disappearances. Now, sure, it's bad for some teenage boys to get arrested any way you cut it, but this was not a normal case of vandalism. Oh, no. You see, the young men had broken into a mausoleum and stole gold fillings out of a corpse's mouth. To add to this, the boys were accused and at least took some partial acceptance to dabbling with a local satanic cult in the area. Friends to Susie Streeter came forward to state Susie broke up with Dustin upon finding out what he and his friends had done and even provided a statement to the police about the crime and which he had bragged to her about. The boys were released after the trial and it is said Susie was nervous, mentioning to several friends that she might be asked to come in and testify in court at a later date and she was fearful of retaliation. In particular, one lead after the disappearance stated that they heard Dustin actually say, I wish all three of those women were dead. He was pulled in for questioning, but both were let go uh, with no evidence, basically, to just saying that you know he'd, he'd had a few too many beers and was basically just spouting off and there was no merit behind the threat. Now, to this day, neither of any of the boys have, been, have not really been arrested obviously with any of the disappearance stuff, and they seem to have kind of maybe straightened up their act and, and cleaned up their act. But, you know, were the, were the teenage boys just kind of ill-mannered jerks after the fact, running their mouth? Or was there something possibly more sinister at play of retaliation? Another, a fourth person of suspect is a Steve Garrison. Now, Steve Garrison, serving 40 years for raping and sodomizing a Springfield College student in the summer of 1993. That's a year after the three women went missing. Then on August 28, 1993, served information as an informant, led the police to Webster County, Missouri. It was Steve Garrison who confessed a friend of his had admitted to killing the three women at a party after drinking a bit too much. It was this information that led in obtaining three separate search warrants at, in this out-of-the-way Webster County farmhouse and land. Garrison had told police where his friend had allegedly buried the three bodies, but nothing was ever found. The circumstances were enough that the police had worked a deal with Garrison to allow him out on bond with a police presence. However, this is where another tragic turn of events occurred. Steve Garrison managed to elude and escape the cops 
during this time frame. And it was during this short time frame that he raped and sodomized another Springfield College student before being apprehended again by the police. He then went to trial and was convicted of that particular rape, but uh, quite a story tag there. Gets himself out of jail, now theorizing that he didn't even have a friend that told him any of this. It was all a made-up story to get him out of jail, to make that deal, to get put out on bond, to escape from the police, to break into a Springfield College girl's dorm and rape her. It just, that's horrible, you know. In a much more recent criminal investigation, an area known as Moon Valley uh, in Dallas County involving... Oh, I've yeah. been there. Yeah, I have been too. I've taken I've been, my kids to swim in this area I was of the river. Say, I've been right by that house and I didn't even know it. Someone had to explain that to me. Connect the dots. Yeah. Once once I realized I was like, oh my goodness. Now there's this area called Moon Valley, and at the time I think it has now been uh, shut off, but there was a river access uh, called Moon Valley, kinda close to Bennett Springs, the back way, in Dallas County, involving a brutal killing and mutilation and even cannibalism occurring with a young lady known as Cassidy Rainwater. Alleged. Alleged. In September of twenty twenty one. Photographs had been leaked of the almost naked rainwater being kept in a cage at this rural farmhouse. Ironically, there was mention of a similar 1970s panel van matching the one described in the missing three case 29 years earlier. This case is still ongoing with two suspects in custody and alleged stories that this could possibly lead to a long line, including the missing three. I will say allegedly again that 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 is still in process. I believe the last news I saw was that prosecu- prosecutors are trying to get the death penalty for for their primary. Was it what's the guy's Phelps or something? Yeah, Phelps is one of them. And, and to be honest, I only heard the reference of the van for maybe a week, and then it was just like that was something that I guess popped up on Facebook. There was a similar van on the property, maybe. But anyone familiar with that story, and and we. Eric and I have talked about this. We absolutely intend to, to cover it as a separate story later on. Uh, the property, there there was a fire, and then and, and so the ex- during the investigation, and yeah, so there's there's some some you know loss of evidence or, or however you want to phrase it. It was just it's a it's a crazy story in itself. It's just a little too early to cover that. Yeah, we you know out of respect for everyone involved. I've got a few more. Uh, number five suspect, Larry Dwayne Hall, convicted serial killer. Larry Dwayne Hall, who is suspected of murdering between 39 and 54 women, 14 of which he has either confessed openly to or the bodies have been found, and he is the suspect. To give you some insight on the violent nature of this serial killer, it starts back in 1987 and boasts act of necrophilia, but also torture, strangulation, mutilation, rape, and, of course, murder. He is known to have taken and kept hidden personal items from each victim. He was known at the time to be living with uh, his parents in Wabash, Indiana. That's about eight hours from Springfield, Missouri. Now you're thinking, well, eight hours, that's, that's that's a far cry. However, Larry and his twin brother, Gary, were both very active Civil War enthusiasts and often drove to and from Springfield for reenactments yep. at nearby Wilson Creek Battlefield several times a year. 
That would that would definitely be a reason to be there. One might argue the fact of twins somewhat even cloud or murky the alibis and whereabouts involving crimes and investigations. And remember, Battlefield is where the last party the girls attended and where they were spotted at 2 a.m. the night of the graduation. That brings that eight miles or eight hour drive much, much closer to home. As heinous as these crimes are, Larry has never been convicted of any of the 39 to 54 murders of various women, but he is currently serving life imprisonment for kidnapping as the investigations go on. Number six, Gerald Carnahan, political Missouri family. Yes, that's a name I've heard before. Gerald, or Jerry Carnahan, was affiliated with a rape murder case against a woman named Jackie Johns back in the mid-1980s. June 18, 1985, a 20-year-old beauty queen and waitress in nearby Nixa, Missouri, just a few minutes outside of Springfield, who went missing. Now, Jackie John's black Camaro was found in a convenient uh, store parking lot with her bloodied clothes thrown into the back seat. Four days later, on June 22, 1985, two fishermen discovered John's naked body in Lake Springfield. She had blunt force trauma to the head, possibly by a carjack and signs of rape. Have you been to Lake Springfield? I have. There's if all kinds were, of things there from piranha to crocodiles to dead bodies to... If you're going to dump a body in a body of water around here... You could find a much you could find a better place. Yeah, yeah. With that, that is probably less traveled. Yes, yes. Prime suspect of the Jackie Johns case was well-known businessman Gerald Carnahan, whose truck, by the way, had been spotted uh, where Johns was last seen. And while he claimed he did not know the young woman, he quickly replied with an alibi that was he was at the local bar with his stepdaughter that night. But police firmly believe Gerald beat and raped Jackie Johns and then disposed of her body there in Lake Springfield to whatever point. Uh, However, there was never enough to convict. There was never enough evidence there. I think I remember when that was in the news. I was still in school during that one. Jackie Johns, uh, her body had been disposed there in Lake Springfield. Um, However, again, like I said, there was not enough evidence to convict. Later in 1993, however, Gerald Carnahan was convicted and attempted to kidnap an 18-year-old girl in Springfield. Uh, This time, before he was uh, even sentenced, he quickly pled guilty to burglary, arson, and stealing for a separate incident. Now, keep in mind, the Johns case, even with the body, as well as the Springfield 3 Uh, DNA was still not being used by the police, so evidence was very, very hard to come by at that time frame. However, a breakthrough occurred on August of 2007, 22 years after the murder of Jackie Johns, when a Missouri State Highway Patrol officer assigned to the cold case was able to reconnect the dots by using DNA technology and connect Carnahan to the death of Jackie Johns. Could he have been the one to take Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl? Most will say no. The man had no known connections with the three women, and his one known convicted case was, shall we say, kind of sloppy with bloody clothes being left and thrown in the back seat, not at all described as the total just vanishing of the Springfield Three. One last closing story. This one just came out uh, relatively recently. Back in 2013, a 37-year-old man wrote in or replied to a website link. It was a crime scene investigation link regarding the Springfield Three. He was from Fort Worth, Texas, and at the time he was visiting family here in Missouri when the girls had went disappearing. He stated on the evening of June 6, 1992, the exact date, at about 4 a.m. in the morning, he, 
at the age of 15 and a slightly older friend at the age of 17 that he only referred to as Chuck were exploring the dark woods near Springfield Lake. To be precise, it was the intersection of Highway 60 and 65 at that location at Springfield Lake. In this area, known by locals as the Old Girl Scout Camp, which allegedly closed in the 1970s after a group of Girl Scouts were slain. It had become one of the local teen haunts. At the time, you could still find foundations to buildings and below-ground pool and fireplace with a chimney that littered the hillside. Teenagers loved to go there to party and just sit around the ruins and tell ghost stories. Now, I hate to burst anyone's bubble. Did a little research on this. This was not a Girl Scout camp. <laughs> this was the grounds of what was known as Wanaka Lodge a hunting cabin owned by the Switzer family of Springfield. A fire destroyed it back in 1977. The boys were there after dark, obviously, exploring the 50, 60 yards away up on the wood level away from uh, Springfield Lake, um, when all of a sudden a 1970s model faded green van appears out of nowhere with its headlights. Was, was, was that a park at that point in time? No. Okay, because that's a park now. It would have had access, I'm sure, to Springfield Lake, yeah. but I, I guess it could be related to a park, but more of like a parking Well, I was going to say, it's like a, like a state park kind of thing now. I don't think so at that time. Okay. Right. Now, the boys, of course, were up the hill, 50, 60 yards away with flashlights. They quickly ducked behind some underbrush, turned out the flashlights, and watched, quite possibly thinking it was some other teens that had pulled up to make out or party or whatever. They, however, watched and listened in horror. When three men appeared out of the old van, pulling out three women who appeared to be bound, they were screaming and were thrown to the ground. It was very apparent the women were horrified as they watched the silhouettes play out in the headlights of the old van before their very eyes. The boys were petrified, afraid to move to alert the men of their presence, a few hundred feet away, literally up into the dark woods. They said they watched the men literally kill one of the women, shooting her and then described graphically how all three men beat and raped the remaining two women. After about three to four hours just before daylight, the men loaded to the women, including the presumed corpse. They were all thrown hastily in the back of the van, and they drove off. The two boys swore they would never tell a soul, in fear of their own lives and for getting in trouble for trespassing. Well, I, I think there should be instincts that override that. And I think to that point, when he's 37 year old, many, many years later, he's like enough time has passed. But now a middle-aged man, the unidentified 15-year-old boy at the time, wrote in and said it was something that haunted him his entire life, as well as his friend Chuck, who he stated took his own life just a year or so after the incident. It was apparently too much for him to cope with. Now, this information was given to the Springfield Police Department, and they did do an investigation on the lead. But with it being 25 years ago, there was not a lot to go on. It was found that an 18-year-old young man by the name of Charles Kestler did take his own life at his home near Ozark, just miles away from Springfield. Ozark is close enough. Very close. I mean, it's just kind of right in between Springfield and Branson. I mean, literally. Well, it's it's what the next major intersection basically. Now, the police detectives did feel the story was very sincere. 
I was very believable. Many of them were well familiar with the area. Going back to some of the older cops that had been on duties for many years, they were very familiar with the tales of the old Girl Scout camp frequented by the teens and going there, breaking up parties. And, you know, they felt the story showed great merit. They, They also said that they felt this had such sincerity because the person reporting it weren't glory hunters. They weren't seeking fame or attention. The man, you know, he didn't claim they were directly involved. He he did not allude that they knew where the bodies were, wasn't asking for anything, but rather it just simply seemed a sincere story the man just needed to tell to get off his chest. Now, assuming this is a a true story, and quite honestly, I I do believe it it probably is. Who were the three men? I was going to say, it seems to line up with some of the earlier witness accounts. Were they the same three men spotted in a similar van behind the house with the dentist uh, that mentioned with Cheryl Levitt? Or could it be the three teenage boys, uh, the vandals who broke into the mausoleum, Susie Streeter's ex-boyfriend who they had broke up with, or possibly just three other random men you know we may never know now like i said as we started this off this is still uh even though they've been declared deceased at this point in 1997 this is still an open case 30 cold years case, later but it's still open I, I mean i know i know we don't have the, the the widest reach on our audience here but you know you can still submit tips about the case if there's anything and then, and again, you, you just need to contact Springfield Police Department or Crime Stoppers. Green County, Springfield, Missouri Police Department is 417-864-1810. And I will tell you, when I started doing the research for this podcast, this one hit pretty pretty close to home. And these girls deserve justice. The family deserves to know what happened. Uh, you know, they are declared dead. I think at this point, it's pretty much presumed, you know, that that they are dead, but the family for Pete's sake, you know, if if there's someone out there that knows something enough time has passed, please come forward. This thing was kind of doomed from the start with the unintentional contaminated crime scene, uh, more theories and possibilities of probably any Hollywood movie or horror script imaginable. Still the, the missing three is ongoing, you know, criminal investigations are still open. You know, again, enough time has passed. So if anyone out there knows, to Bill's point, I know we don't reach, you know, the national broadcasting level of a lot of shows. But uh, please, if you have any information, call in 417-864-1810. And thank you once again for listening to another story on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Bart Streeter. This is the son to Cheryl Lovett and sister to Susie Streeter. Sister. (laughs) Bart Streeter. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. 
I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.